Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel, And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John, hello. <laughs> hello, Milton. Now, listen, we've got, um, there's so much in the chat with my main guest, Alex Charters, this week. We cover the entire world, pretty much every market, and even get to gold. But there's one thing that we that we mention in our chat, but we don't follow up. And I wish I had followed up with him. But now I think about it, I realize it doesn't matter that I didn't, because you're slightly obsessed with it as well, uh, which is venture <laughs> capital and private equity and how potentially incorrectly, private companies are priced inside uh, portfolios and in particular inside investment trust portfolios, because I know that's what you've been writing about recently. Yeah, this is one that I'm feeling slightly exercised about because my my gut is at war with my brain slightly on it. Huh. The main point is that it's a private assets, private companies, venture capital, private equity has obviously been a huge part of the bubble era. There's been an awful lot of money funneled into it. Uh, institutions have had it sold to them as this amazing diversifier and they've been more than happy to embrace it because one of the incentives for investing in this stuff is you get to make up the value that you put on it. So that means that whenever there's a down market, everything else in the portfolio has fallen, but you can point to your private assets and say, look, they're not falling. In fact, they've gone up in the last quarter. And everyone's happy to engage in that collective delusion because it means you don't ever have to tell a client that their portfolio's gone down. So there's been lots of mal-incentives. Uh, there's been the whole period of zero interest rates. Lots of venture capital is obviously in kind of like tech and kind of bubble areas anyway. So I can totally, totally see that private assets need to fall a lot and private valuations need to fall a lot. Okay, well, let, let me stop you there to say that I entirely agree with you. And one of the <laughs> things that always slightly amused me over the last few years has been this idea that we should pay more for any particular unit of growth in a private company than we should in a public company, more for a unit of growth in an unproven company or a new company than we should in an older proven company, which always seems to me to be incredibly sort of bizarre because it feels to me like we should pay much more per unit of, of growth in a company that we know something about, that we understand that has a track record than in one that we know very little about. So it's always been slightly surprising to me that, uh, well, not surprising given the wider environment of the bubble and low interest rates, but on a rational level, uh, private companies should be worth significantly less in the main, in the main, than public companies. Yeah, and, and they used to be. I mean, this is all part of the bubble phenomenon. It's like there's, there's two things that stand out. One, which is that yeah, people paying more for private companies than public ones. That's that's a bubble phenomenon for definite in terms of the multiples. But also um, the, the idea that the illiquidity is actually a good thing rather than a bad thing. That sort of is, they, they, I've literally seen this argument change 
during the bubble period where it's been, oh, actually, it's a good thing that you don't know what the price is and that you can't sell because that stops you from selling at the bottom. So it's like there's, it's like a kind of psychological benefit that you're getting from it. Yeah, but there's kind of the job of fund managers and uh, be it private equity or listed or VC, it's their job to not sell at the bottom, isn't it? I mean, you know, so we shouldn't need to put in place artificial muck to prevent them from doing it. Literally their job. It's a bit like what we said about Rishi Sunak last week, you know. <laughs> That's your job. Yeah. Just your job. Not a special promise. Just your just job. Just get on with it. But no, I mean, but so yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's been an extremely bubbly area. RIT Capital, the Rothschild Investment Trust, is, is one of the, the standout ones that's been um, getting kind of discussed. And my only question is whether there's the risk that people start to over-egg what's going on and, and oversimplify what's going on. Because uh, I guess apparently feels that Looking at this, so well, to take RIT specifically, the Telegraph, uh, obviously high-profile share column, Questor, wrote up a broker note that had been released about a month earlier mentioning that you know, the amount of private assets in the portfolio had gone up significantly and the big risk was that this would get written down at some point and that probably wasn't in the price of the portfolio. The thing is that the share price of RIT fell by 10% on the day that that article was published, like a month after this had come out. And, you know, I mean, so much for the efficiency of stock markets, etc. Well, it worries me, John. I tell you, it worries me because I wrote about that yeah, a month I, ago. Yeah. And the share price didn't fall by 10%. What, am I suddenly less influential than Questa? Exactly. This, is, it's brought, an this has brought me into a whole world of introspection and stress. <laughs> Well, I suppose the difference is you didn't say sell and buy a different fund, which was the other thing about this column. They sort of said, well, it's not it's not doing the same thing as, say, capital gearing or rougher. But with all due respect to the, you know, the, the Telegraph journalist, I, I would say that that's not what RIT sets out to do. And it's also not, I, I've never mentally categorised it in the same place as those other funds. Those, those other funds are kind of almost funds that you expect to do well in a bear market, whereas RIT is more a kind of, you know, shouldn't take too much of a kicking in a bear market rather than one that's actively going to go up. So, I mean, yeah, this is all kind of, you know, whatever, angels dancing in a pinhead. But I suppose my point is, you know, it's, it's trading at something like a 20% discount now. And one of the things I think you probably have to look at is how much experience do these managers who ultimately, because we can't value private companies, so a lot of the question is, like, how much do you believe the actual managers of these funds are any good at selecting this stuff? And where you've got, I think that's where you've got to kind of start thinking about, well, is there a difference between, say, the teams at somewhere like Rick Capital and the teams at somewhere like SoftBank, which seems to be, you know, seems to pile head first into whatever guff is laid on their plates. And I think that that's the kind of the difference. And that's possibly where maybe some slightly more, observant investors might be able to find opportunities now? I don't know, John. I think you're you're veering into, as long as it's a good company, who cares about the price territory? Oh, no, no, no. I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking, I'm thinking if you're trading at a discount, a stated, a stated discount to NAV, like, say 20%, mm -hmm. right? And, mm -hmm. and remember, again, I'll, I'll take RIT because it's a good example. I mean, RIT's kind of historic discount. I mean, RIT traded at a premium for like five or six years. Mm. Um, so I'm just saying that's pricing in quite a lot. So what you're, what you're saying is that the 
or I think what you're saying, <laughs> is that the mispricing of the private equity portfolio is in the price of the investment trust. Basically, So we don't yes. need to worry about it anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a, there's a, that's kind of fair. There is a real problem with the pricing of, of private companies inside, inside uh, collective vehicles in that, you know, who can possibly value them? How do you know what it's worth? So all you can do is, I mean, you're guessing, right? All you're doing is you're taking the, the prices of similar listed companies. And sometimes there isn't a similar listed company or isn't, there isn't a wide enough group of similar listed companies, or there hasn't been another private company that's had a, you know, an event of mm. some kind that offers you a price that, that you can't really come up with something that's that's ideal. So you you stick a pin in the air, you, you look around at similar companies and you, you make a vague price and you do that maybe every six months. Um, so there's always going to be a lag. And even with the lag, uh, you know, the, the price is, is still very unlikely to be correct. It's just a best guess. But then, of course, it's the best guess in the public markets as well. So this is a you know, this is not a, a straightforward area. And I don't think you can expect companies to um, you know, adjust the prices of the private companies in their portfolio more than, you know, once mm. a quarter, absolute max, once every six months seems reasonable. So, you know, that again, it's the job of the market to, as you say, add a discount into the uh, discount to the NAV of the investment trust to reflect that. This is not unreasonable. I mean, well, I mean, I think this is the other benefit investment trusts, obviously, because you, you can get that pricing of illiquid assets. And, you know, if you do believe as we you know, broadly do, that even if they're not efficient markets are the best collective guess at the value of an asset at any given point, um, then you know the nice thing about investment trusts is you can get in and out even if the underlying assets are illiquid. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's not, I suppose it's, I'm just finding it an interesting one to think about because uh, it kind of, <laughs> on the one hand, my bearish instincts are look, just you know, everything needs to burn to the ground, and you know, the likes of kind of uh, the, the kind of really stupid things like the f- companies that invested in FTX without even thinking about the due diligence, um, you know, are, are, are in for like an awful lot of trouble. But I do feel as if there's a, a tiny bit of maybe there is a kind of baby out of the, with the bathwater scenario going on here. Okay, and you've been writing about this, haven't you? So everyone should now go and read John's uh, newsletter, uh, Money Distilled, and pick up all the rest of the information on this. And then you can decide for yourselves whether you want to go out and buy shares in RIT because everyone else is too negative. Or if you think, as John's bearish side, <laughs> believes that everything should just burn to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John. Thanks, man. Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset Webb. This week, our guest is Alexander Charters, Investment Director at Ruffer. Uh, Alex specializes in geopolitics and in the investment implications of changes in geopolitics. He's got a particular focus on European politics and on US-China relations, and he is the co-manager of two of Ruffer's flagship funds. Uh, not many uh, fund managers managed to make a positive return last year. The uh, Ruffer Investment Company did up around 5% or so last year, roughly flat year to date so far. It's not a very long year yet, uh, but given what we went through last year, it's quite impressive to have made a little, not to have lost quite a lot. So I started out by asking Alex, what lessons did he, as a, a reasonable performer last year, learn from it? It was a really extraordinary year on so many fronts, and it's, it's difficult to know where to start. The real world shocks were, of course, what helped exacerbate the market shocks. And we had the biggest land war in Europe since 1945. We had China's extraordinary experience with COVID, 
Uh, we had the biggest global energy crisis since the 70s. And for Europe, it was the biggest ever. And then, of course, you have inflation at multi-decade highs, the fastest rate hiking cycle in decades. And it made for a pretty toxic environment for almost all conventional assets. In fact, equities had their worst year since 2008, bonds in much longer, and of course, balanced portfolios, traditional stock bond portfolios, 60-40 uh, in common parlance was down nearly 20%. So there were very few places to hide. Three quarters in a row, actually the first three quarters of last year, you could find almost no conventional assets. So you really had to be using alternatives, and in our case, derivatives to ride out the storm. And, and those were the primary reason we were able to generate a positive return in last year's extraordinary cluster crisis. But Rafa was kind of ready for it, right? I mean, obviously, he couldn't have predicted the exact way the crisis, crisis was going to turn out. But, you know, as a company, you've been talking about the everything bubble. You've been talking about the terrible mistakes made in monetary policy. You've been talking about the consequences that you expected from that, the main one being inflation. So it should have been no surprise to you and your colleagues uh, that most of the things that happened last year happened, regardless of the triggers, uh, energy crisis, war in Ukraine, etc. Obviously, we didn't know exactly what the various triggers would be. We didn't know that COVID was going to happen when it did, or that the Ukraine war um, was definitely going to happen when it did. But what you have been able to see for a number of years is the way that under the bonnet, the global system has been rewiring itself to be more inflation prone and more volatile. And so higher inflation more volatility were for us questions of when, not if. And of course, you had the one-two of uh, the COVID crisis and then the Ukraine war last year. And those really were great accelerations in terms of the stimulus. In the first instance, they dumped into the system, the supply constraints they applied, and then more supply issues, particularly around energy and commodities last year. And they revealed that rewiring under the bonnet. And we think that's what investors have really got to be focused on going forward because it's a very, very different environment to the one they've all been used to. Well, let's talk a little bit more about last year before we move on to the hell that might be this year. You talked about <laughs> how it was the use of derivatives that, that sort of saved you last year. Tell us a little bit more about that. One of the great things about being a, an unconstrained asset manager is that we can buy anything, anywhere, anytime, as long as it's to support our core objectives, which are to preserve capital and grow it in any market conditions. And precisely because, as you suggest, we've been worried about the risk of inflation and therefore an end to ultra-low rates, and that this would force a reversal of the everything bubble where essentially all conventional assets had gone up together, um, you'd find a world where high cross-asset correlations, in other words, everything was then falling together, would leave no places to hide. And that led us to a mix of derivative protections. So first of all, we wanted to own options on higher interest rates, and they were the principal driver last year. We also wanted credit derivatives because credit looked extremely expensive, and that's pretty correlated with equity declines. So if equities fall, credit spreads tend to go up. And we also wanted direct protections on downside in equity markets, both 
at an index level and an individual stock level, and they all contributed to performance last year. And the other thing that um, you very publicly did in the portfolio um, and have talked about a lot over the last, actually, the last 10 years or so, I think you've been, been talking about this, holding um, index linkers, long-dated inflation-linked bonds. You've been holding them for a long time and the expectation that they will be one of the things that would protect you when when the, the horrible day came, which it did last year. But that didn't quite work out, right? No, I, I think that's um, a very diplomatic uh, way of... <laughs> I try and be uh, diplomatic on these ...way of describing it very... Um, the the ultra-long-dated UK inflation-linked bonds, which are the longest dated of their kind in the world, were down, I think, more than Bitcoin last year. Gosh, and that is really quite something, isn't it? That that is that is quite something. Now, I should point out a couple of things. First of all, we fully expected the bonds to decline likely sharply, and that's why we'd hedged them carefully with these interest rate options. And those interest rate options more than offset the declines in the inflation-linked bonds in the strategy. So that's the first important caveat. They were hedged. It's true, though, that they fell more than we expected. You'd anticipate when rates go up, if you've got extremely long-dated bonds with, uh, in the jargon, very high duration, which simply means they're very sensitive to changes in interest rates. So as rates go up, the bond prices fall. We would have expected more of an offset from the second component of the way you value an inflation-linked bond, and that is the inflation expectation. And um, the remarkable thing, Merrin, despite everything that's happened over the last couple of years, is that long-term inflation pricing remains pretty much the same as where it was pre-COVID. So you've got no compensation in that element of the bond, and as a result, they were just punished for being long-dated bonds. Uh, needless to say, given our view that the world is more inflation-prone and volatile going forward, we think that long-term inflation pricing looks very complacent and we would expect it to rise and that will be the environment that's good for those bonds. Okay, well, that brings us very neatly into 2023. And the main topic that uh, you know, I think everyone's talking about and will talk about all year is inflation, where it goes from here. Does it stay high? Does it go low? Is the biggest risk a suddenly disinflationary environment or possibly you know, there are some people out there already talking about outright deflation as prices come down very suddenly. You know, let's say that all the problems inside the supply chain, you know, gradually fix themselves and we see things loosening up already, right? We see it in shipping rates and all that kind of thing. We can see things beginning to loosen up. We begin to see a fall off in the demand that came from the ridiculous fiscal stimulus of the pandemic. And let's say there's also not a further energy prices. You know, we listened on the news this morning hearing that petrol prices are back where they were uh, pre the, the war in Ukraine. So if all these things come together, the inflationary problem disappears pretty much overnight. No thanks, by the way, to um, the central banks, because there's absolutely no way that their interest rate increases could have worked through already. So no thanks to them. But naturally, these things happen. That's kind of the, the biggest biggest surprise, potential surprise of the year, possibly? Um, well, you're right on the central bankers, Marin, and of course, that won't stop them taking credit for it in just the same way they took credit for multiple decades of low and relatively stable inflation for reasons that um, we would say were largely beyond their control. But we think that there is a disinflationary wave coming this year. You're already seeing it in the falling rates of inflation. So prices are still going up, but at a, um, a reduced level. And the energy story you talked about is, is part of that. But the real question now is around recession and around China's reopening and the effect this has 
on the path of central banks because inflation alongside central bank action is absolutely what's top of Mr. Market's mind. And the truth is, 2022 reminds us maximum humility in this sort of environment is required. The truth is no one actually knows how China's reopening is going to impact global inflation. Of course, if it pushes it up, that potentially means that the Fed will have to stay tighter for longer because inflation pressures may be more resilient than the market expects. The bottom line at the moment is that the market is effectively pricing a Goldilocks story for this year. So it's expecting that either a recession will be avoided um, or it will be very shallow, that uh, the Fed won't go as high as it says it will in rates, that inflation will drift back down towards uh, targets as the central banks hope and pray it will. That is pretty optimistic. And there are obviously a lot of things that can go wrong with that. Okay. So as far as you're concerned, shallow is basically the new transient. Um, Shallow and Goldilocks uh, probably is the new transient. Look, it's definitely not out of the question. But as the experience of history shows, when you've got inflation that goes above about 5%, getting it back down sustainably to 2%, the average central bank target, typically takes years because it finds its way into corners of the system. Now, to be absolutely clear, our thesis is that inflation is going to be volatile, not that it's just going to go up and stay up. And that's really important. And that's one of the reasons we think that this disinflationary wave is so important this year, because you're going to hear a lot of people if it happens, um, saying, ah, the transitory story was right. The central banks have got it back under control. Nothing to see here, folks. We can go back to all the most popular trades of the last cycle. And we think that's dangerous because there'll be plenty of opportunities for some of those assets to rally. But if you think that over the longer run, inflation is going to be even modestly higher than it was in the post-credit crunch era, that means a lot of the most popular strategies are simply not going to work as well as they did. Well, I'm going to take that as as an incredibly positive comment. Now, listeners, listen carefully to this. You might have an opportunity to get out of some of those tech stocks you wish you'd got out of in late 2021 at a higher price than you can get today if people believe things that Alex thinks they shouldn't believe. Is that right, Alex? Yeah, look, there's there's plenty of opportunity if soft landing appears and uh, and for some reason the Fed does flinch. But look, the reality is we think the Fed is going to be tighter for choice than the market thinks, that inflation pressure will be more persistent, even though prices are coming down this year, and that over the long run, you need to be reconsidering the fundamental basis of a lot of those strategies. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market. 
as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Alex, let's stop there and go back and look at why it is that you think that inflation is going to be much more volatile than it's been. Now, let's accept that there's a disinflationary wave coming. I agree with you. We're seeing a lot of the things that have driven up inflation over the last couple of years beginning to fall off. We're beginning to loosen the supply chain, all this kind, kind of thing. But... Is it not possible that inflation would just come down to, I don't know, say two or three percent and kind of stay there for another couple of years? Wouldn't that be nice? Why would that not happen? Well, probably because the settlement that underpins those extraordinary low and stable inflation numbers for the last 30 years or so is being unpicked. And it's being unpicked in some cases pretty quickly. The obvious place to start is probably the Ukraine war, because it's an example of the kind of breakdown in world order that we've been worried about for a long time. And obviously, China's the biggest player in the deflation engine in terms of the additions to supply that drove low prices in the last generation. And both China and and the Western bloc are now interested in strategic security and supply chain resilience is much more important. Resilience is going to increase cost pressures. Remember, wars, both hot and cold, both tend to be inflationary. So world order is a big part of it. On the domestic front, you can see that the Thatcher-Reagan settlement that favoured The small state, free trade, uh, lower taxes is on its way out. And in its place, you have return of big government with activist fiscal reflexes that at the first whiff of grape shot, pressure on um, the public's purses. You have calls for more subsidies, price controls, fiscal stimulus. We've seen it, obviously, with energy, which has been a huge shock for people. But you can hear the clamor also for mortgage help in many countries as the era of free money ends. And that's one of the central facts of our time, that suddenly debt matters again. And then, of course, on that note, you've got ageing with huge bills for pensions and health and social care. So the pressure on government finances is going up just as rates start to go up more and demand more payment for interest rates, bills. You've got deglobalisation. All of these huge long-term factors, not to mention wartime economics around issues like climate change, mean higher inflation pressure, and more volatility. It's interesting on government spending, isn't it? I mean, in the UK, for example, we never seem to get government spending down much below 35% of GDP, but we've never in the past managed to get it up much above 38 39% of GDP for very long. But looking at the promises that the government is making now, as you say, around everything from the cost of living crisis to the NHS to social care, etc., it's almost impossible to imagine um, us keeping that tax take below 40% going forward. I think that's fair. But the reality is when you can't raise enough money through taxes to pay your bills, what are you going to do? Um, Well, you're going to square the circle through financial repression. And that in plain English means they're going to try and keep inflation and the rate of nominal economic growth well ahead of the rate of interest. And that's going to erode the value of money. And that's how they're going to pay these bills. So it's a bad environment for savers. And you can see the kind of things already that are characteristic of financial repression. So if you think about all of these plans for your pension pots, when the government says, wouldn't it be nice if this money was uh, funneled towards these important infrastructure projects, this will be a kind of compulsory part of your, uh, your pension allocation potentially in future. This is how they trap money 
in areas that they want it directed, not that are good uh, for your long-term preservation of wealth. Yeah, it effectively becomes a kind of tax, doesn't it? And it's the kind of government policy that would dovetail very neatly with the auto-enrolment system, which I think has been absolutely brilliant so far. You know, it effectively provides an adequate retirement for everyone in work in the UK until possibly the government starts saying, well, 30% of that should be put into um, our own productive investments and in, in whatever it is. People should remember with all the obsessive focus on is the Fed going to do this, is the Fed going to do that, the central issue is we've just seen clearly that central banks are not masters of inflation. It's an emperor's new clothes moment over the last couple of years. And the long-term forces that have led to this disinflationary era are very clear. They're going into reverse. That changes the symmetry of risk going forward. But remember, central banks' job is not primarily to control inflation. That might be what their legal mandates say they're there for, possibly plus or minus Uh, an employment uh, or growth target here or there. But central banks were founded to help governments manage their debt. And that is their central function today, as it always has been. You know, the Bank of England, that's the template for most modern central banks, was founded in 1694 um, to help the, the government get away its debt in order to pay for a rebuilding of the Royal Navy following a drubbing by the French. Central banks are there to help manage government finances, not to protect your money. It's interesting, and we would expect them to become uh, more political now than they've been in the past. We've had this sort of era where we have been allowed to believe or allowed ourselves to believe that central banks are entirely non-political. There they are. There they are out there, nothing to do with the government, not listening to any prime ministers or chancellors, just getting on with their core job of keeping inflation low. That pretense is kind of gone, isn't it? Yeah, and they're in a window of political opportunity at the moment because they've done this extraordinary tightening, the fastest tightening we've seen for a generation. But the real economy isn't feeling the pain of that yet. So there's a window for them to get their hikes in before the political pressure to ease really comes in with a vengeance, because they're not politically insensitive, whatever they say. And um, what we're going to see this year is going to be really important. Are the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of England, the BOJ... Are these banks really prepared to inflict serious real economy pain against an already febrile backdrop in order to push inflation back to target? Or will we see the kind of kite flying that we've already had from senior people at the IMF, where suddenly you hear, well, maybe, uh, maybe central bank inflation targets should actually be 3% or 4%. You know, 2% is pretty arbitrary, isn't it? Why, why are we obsessed with getting it back there? Now, that, that might be right. But it's a very important sign, just as the price controls and the clamour for fiscal stimulus are of the direction of travel, and it's not towards lower inflation on a structural basis. Well, the 2% thing is interesting, isn't it? I'm going to go off topic here. Here I go. John and, John and I were looking at this last year and uh, trying to figure out, John Tappick and I were trying to figure out exactly where this 2% target came from. Where did the idea that 2% is the correct rate of inflation for a developed economy come from? And uh, we looked and looked. And of course, it's almost impossible to find the academic research to back this stuff up. And I eventually found an article in a now defunct magazine called The Statist uh, from, I think, 1964, that referred to the original research, which was about developing economies, not developed, and uh, referred to 2% as being an appropriate rate. I'm going to dig that out and um, I will uh, try and find it for you. And I will put a link somewhere on the Bloomberg website in a column of mine because it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, so, so interesting. I mean, as far as central banks go, 
and the markets this year. Inflation is important, obviously, because it dictates how tight they keep policy. And over the short term, the big risk going forward, we think, is still around liquidity in the market. So how much money is there available to chase assets? And you've got to remember not only that rates have gone up uh, very sharply, and we haven't felt the full effect of that yet, partly because we haven't reached um, peak rates yet, but also because they're trying to run down their balance sheet holdings of assets. And that means at just the moment that yields are already higher, um, they're going to start trying to dump more and more government bonds into the market uh, for investors to absorb. So there's a real challenge for liquidity, and um, that's, that's a big risk going into year alongside the recession risk to earnings, which is one of the reasons we're very low in equities at the moment. You're very low in equities. So you hold some equities, obviously. So what do you hold? How does that work? I mean, if we if we take your, your view that inflation is going to be very volatile, then there may still be quite a long way for the longer duration assets to fall to say growth stocks, which had a horrible couple of years, well, horrible year, should I say, uh, value outperformed significantly last year. And there's now a view, which I keep hearing, that the growth stocks have fallen enough, that big UK US tech is on the way back. And, uh, you know, now's the time to buy, etc. But if you're right, which, by the way, I think you are, um, that's just not true, is it? Barely begun. Well, last year was in, in many ways pretty orderly. So we think the everything bubble has started deflating. You had the most extreme and liquidity fueled extensions of that uh, taking the hit first. So Think uh, the crazy crypto activity, non-fungible tokens, the SPAC universe, a bonfire of the acronyms. And the real hit, the real shock for a lot of people was bonds, because obviously your principal offset for most people, as we, as we mentioned at the top, didn't work. It was correlated with equities. So the bond shock was really the bigger one, because equity drawdowns, the scale we saw last year, aren't that uncommon, even though it was a bad year. Bond drawdowns on that scale are extremely uncommon. But there's still plenty of pain for assets that haven't yet felt um, the full effect of those uh, high yields. And those would include heavily leveraged things like private equity, venture capital, corners of property. There's plenty of pain still to go. And of course, in terms of equities, remember, all of the damage last year at a market level was derating. In other words, investors prepared to pay play lower multiples for earnings of companies. But the earnings themselves haven't fallen yet. And indeed, earnings estimates are still pretty buoyant, although they're coming down. So this year, if the recession arrives, it must be the most widely forecast recession in history. But let's assume a a recession does arrive this year. Earnings risk is very material. If the economy goes into recession, earnings always go down. Uh, That's not going to be good for equities. And so as far as we're concerned, we've got only about 10%, 10, 10 to 15% in equity, cash equity. But on a net basis, it's zero because we have derivative hedges on the other side of it. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. 
Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So what are you exposed to? Um, at the moment, we've got the ultra-long-dated index-linked bonds and quite a lot of shorter-dated uh, inflation-protected bonds. We've got similar things in the United States, 30-year tips, which we've been trading recently. We've got a uh, position in oil. Um, we've got quite a lot of derivatives still. We've got four and a bit percent in gold and a few other bonds. And we've got a very large cash and a near cash position. And we built that up over the course of last year to give us the firepower we wanted in expectation of dislocation starting to appear as liquidity was sucked out of the market at a record rate. And we were able to use that, for example, in the uh, the back end of last year when the UK gilt market went into meltdown after the trust quarteng budget. And we were able to trade some of those ultra-long dated UK index linked bonds quite well. But last year, the best conventional asset you could own was dollar cash. All other conventional assets fell. Cash has a very powerful value in a high-risk environment. It gives you a lot of optionality. And we are keen to have some of that. It's interesting, though, isn't it? We're, we often write about how important it is in times like this to hold cash and exactly that, that you must think of it in terms of its optionality and you must try not to think about the amount of uh, purchasing power you're losing in real terms. And I, I looked back to the 1970s, which is the last time we had an environment sort of similar to this, you know, financial repression, ongoing crisis, etc. And there were very few periods in the 1970s when rates on deposit accounts were not high enough that you were breaking even in real terms. It happened occasionally, but the majority of the time, if you'd held cash, you'd broken even in real terms by the end of the year. Completely different environment. We look back on the 70s as being a, a terrible time for savers, but relative to where we are now, they were fantastic. Yeah, extraordinary. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the gold, because as you know, I'm very keen on gold, and I think everyone should hold gold in their portfolios. And I've written several columns explaining over the years why Bitcoin is absolutely not the new gold, because it has none of the characteristics that gold has that make it so valuable as a form of, of money. Now, you might not necessarily agree with that, because you have in the past had a position in Bitcoin, so you must have thought it had some potential for something, if not necessarily to be the new gold. But um, let's put that aside. Keep probably don't want to talk about that. Yeah, let's I stress about, a long time ago. A long time ago. Now. So let's talk about why you hold 4 5% of the portfolio in gold. Relative to our historic weighting, that's pretty low. One of the reasons that's the case is that last year when it was actually even lower, um, we expected gold to take a hit as rates went up. And um, that's exactly what happened. Fundamentally, over the long term, you want to own things that the government can't print or it's harder for them to steal your savings. And, uh, and gold is absolutely part of the mix. At the moment, it's enjoying a bit of relief as um, the weaker dollar comes into play. And there's expectation on the market's part 
of easing up of rates further out into the back end of this year. Okay, but long t- long term doesn't really make any any difference. This is a short term argument for keeping your position slightly lower than it would have been over the longer term if we're in a, a volatile inflation, a politically difficult and inflationary environment. Look, geopolitical risk is going up. Inflation risk is going up. Pressure on government finances is going up. Financial repression risk is going up. All of those things over the long run should be good for gold. Um, We've got a mix between bullion and uh, gold miners, which offer you leveraged exposure, of course, last year with very high uh, energy and labor costs. They had a bad time. That's why we've been reducing them. Um, But it's starting to look interesting again. You've seen that in the market action. I think it tells you a lot that um, global central banks are picking up gold um, at quite a clip at the moment. Yeah, I saw that the uh, Chinese central bank buying quite a lot, which is interesting. Um, you know, we often talk about what is money and what isn't money. I was uh, uh, went into a school quite recently and I was talking to them about the nature of money and I always give them a few different things when I go and do this. I give them a, a cowrie shell each, I give them a bit of paper money and I give them a little finger full of those um, shredded dollar bills that you can, you can uh, get from the uh, central bank in the US and ask them, you know, which of these things is money? And the answers are really interesting, but we always get back to the end. If if people believe it's money, it's money. And gold is the only thing that people have consistently believed is money for, for thousands and thousands of years, right? Which effectively makes it money. Yeah. Alex, let's just go back a little bit and, and pick up on what you said about, about China. Massive changes underway there, which could end up being inflationary, could end up being deflationary. Talk me talk me through how that works. Well, the, the shift in China is not to be underestimated for a few reasons. So on the inflation deflation front, it's one of the key unknowns, uh, as I mentioned, in terms of how it interacts with central bank policymaking this year and therefore for markets. If it is driven by all the classic Chinese levers like real estate development, it's going to be commodity intensive. That might feed through more directly into inflation numbers. You've also got to remember they've got three years of accumulated savings waiting to be spent. And I read that the totality of those savings is more than UK GDP. So if you think about the experience of Western countries as they did reopen, the argument would be that it is going to be more inflationary. Of course, we don't know what the shape of uh, Chinese activity will be after three years of COVID, whether there'll be permanent scarring, whether uh, it will be less real estate and commodity intensive. So the impact is, is uncertain. But the fact of the pivot at all is potentially very significant. Because remember, at the Congress last year, the Communist Party, where Xi secured his third term and appeared to double down on all his signature policies, including uh, zero COVID, the market really uh, took fright. And what we've had since then is the most extraordinary series of policy U-turns. So not only have they scrapped zero COVID overnight, despite all the medical constraints like um, low proportion of properly vaccinated over 80s and um, all the rest of it. They've also scrapped the leverage ratios for developers and a huge number of other uh, things like easing up on um, tech platform crackdowns, or at least some agencies have. So there does appear to be quite a significant pivot And that's mirrored in the diplomatic space where China's tried to build bridges with Australia, a more emollient New Year address from Mr. Xi and an appearance from him at the Bali summit with the G20 last year. And that does suggest that they're after some breathing space. Now, that may, of course, indicate the severity of the domestic situation in China. But I think what you can have confidence in is that 
um, they are determined to make the reopening Big Bang a success because particularly with health problems, they can't afford for it not to be. So that's very interesting in terms of uh, who profits from a China reopening. Alex, you and I were at a conference together a few months ago, and one of the speakers, Jim Mellon, he was talking about the technological revolution. And one of the things he was saying was how disappointing it had been that over the last decade or so, we've had these huge technological leaps forward. And we've kind of wasted them all by watching dancing dancing nurses on TikTok and playing on Facebook and that kind of thing. We haven't used the technology that we developed in such a way as to improve productivity and improve our our lives. Now, when you look at that, do you think, well, possibly there's something in the idea that we could have had a, a productivity revolution over the last decade? We haven't, but we could now have one over the next decade as we start to embed our, our innovations properly into our economy. Yes, it's definitely possible. And in, in some areas, that will happen. I mean, it's worth remembering, though, technology is often used as the, the sort of torpedo to the more inflation pressure uh, argument, the idea that those sorts of productivity gains are, are going to prevent any recurrence of more inflation pressure. Let's remember that many of the biggest game-changing technologies happened in periods of much more elevated inflation. You know, I'm not just talking about the combustion engine, I'm talking about aviation, I'm talking about dawn of the computers. I mean, these are all things that happened outside of the extraordinary deflationary era we've been in for the last generation and around which all of the most popular portfolio strategies are built. So um, we're not gloomy at all about uh, technological prospects. In many cases, they're extraordinarily exciting. It's just that, one, they're not likely to overwhelm the return of the big state, the deglobalization forces, the more politicized central banks, aging and pressure on labor markets as wage earners get more power with relatively smaller uh, pools of labor. It's unlikely that technology, at least in the immediate future, is going to be able to overwhelm all of those structural factors. And it's also the case that technology was the market darling in that deflationary era because it was the one area you could consistently get growth. And we're simply saying that if there is a bit more inflation and nominal growth around and a bit more volatility, different things are going to work in the new era. Okay, well, let's talk briefly about what the retail investor should now do. I mean, obviously, the first thing they should do is rush out and buy rougher because you just explained to us uh, why that's a good idea. But outside that, a lot of the strategies that, that you use inside the fund are not really available to the ordinary retail investor. So if you could put yourself in, in their shoes and look out over the next, say, five years, what kind of sector or area would you be invested in? So, you know, you worry quite rightly about hot wars and cold wars, and we can see the, the risk in that happening everywhere. And even Japan is now, is now building an, an offensive military capability, which is which is um, worrying for all sorts of people. And you worry about uh, demographics, obviously you worry about labor shortages. So is it defense stocks? Is it robotics? Is it, uh, what, what is it that you would think to yourself over the next five years, this is somewhere where a retail investor has just got to be? Every era has its... Uh... It's kind of dominant class of ideas, doesn't it? You know, if we went back to 1980, the S&P's 10 largest companies would, at least half of them would be oil. Um, you know, at the end of the 80s, early 90s, it was Japanese banks. And then in 2000, TMT bubble, you had all the tech names. And then a lot of them were Chinese at the start of the last decade. And um, on the eve of 
2022 and the Zeitenwender, as uh, Olaf Scholz described it. Um, it was all tech, wasn't it? And um, I think the, the lesson of the last couple of years is that matter matters again. You know, shortages are real. Um, you can't print energy. And in order to fulfill big visions around energy transitions, you need a lot of commodities. So uh, to us, there is still value in energy and other commodities. I mentioned earlier, we've got a bit of oil at the moment um, on a long-term wealth preservation uh, against financial repression basis. Inflation-protected bonds, you'd expect me to say, and gold are important. There's definitely going to be value around in maybe small cap Japan or the UK. I think the difficulty is standing here at the start of 2023, facing the kind of liquidity risk we think you've got, and the sort of recession risk that seems likely this year and the uncertainty around the impact of China's reopening. You don't want to have huge conviction directionally at the moment. This is a, a period for maximum humility. And our entire philosophy is based around not getting it completely wrong rather than getting it completely right. So when we're building a portfolio, Merrin, we're not going around thinking, here are the best ideas on a five-year view. We're building a portfolio which should protect and grow capital regardless of what happens in the market. Um, and hopefully this environment is a very good example of how that's powerful. Alex, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hugely appreciate it. Thank you, Marion. Thank you for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We will be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our new show, please rate, review it and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you very much for doing that. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Summer Saadi, editing and sound design by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Alexander Charters, of course, and to John Stepek. And finally, do not forget to sign up to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. In it, he gives his blood, sweat, and tears to tell you what you should be doing with your money. The least you can do for us is to read it. The link is in the show notes. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.